This podcast was recorded by Cornerstone Community at the Southern Regional Master in Bendigo, Victoria. The speakers are Andrew Vincent and Lucas Frost. The talk is The True Light is Shining. For more information on Cornerstone Community, go to cornerstone.edu.au. The uh, heaters are on, the steam's up the back. So if you see someone next to you who looks a little too comfortable in the lounge, then, uh, you know, the old flick on the ear or something like that or the elbow. Uh, The coffee urn is up the back there. The more sort of uh, Christ-like of you might go and get your neighbour a black coffee um, and then drop it in their lap or something. Anyway, um, just stick with us. You know, it's... uh, And, uh, you know, some of those... You hear about in those sort of southern churches in the US where the uh, people in the audience say, we can't hear you, brother. <laughs> Preach it. If we need a bit of that, then give us a bit of that too. Um, we're open for anything, but we, we want to... <laughs> Get on your mat. <laughs> I could text you names as well of people who need a big amen in their ear. But... Um, just keep an eye on Benet there. She's no. <laughs> anyway, we are we wanting to talk about the the fact that the darkness is disappearing, the true light is already shining, and uh, they're pretty amazing words. I want I want to try and we want to sort of help you feel what it was like for the first hearers of those words, and in feeling what it was like for them, try and feel what it needs to be like for us. And then Luke's and I just share some of the the sort of things we reckon the Lord's put on our heart to say about what it means to live as children of the light, what it means to live out the light while the darkness is still around us. And uh, part of the trouble with these words is we come to them in Bible study. We've heard them before. We've looked at them before. They come from this book that we've read before. And uh, it's all so familiar and also kind of we know it all. And part of the problem is we know it all and it hasn't really made a difference in our lives. I don't think that's why John wrote it in the first place. Uh, I don't think he was thinking, man, what are they going to do in 2,000 years um, you know, when they sit down to study the Bible if we haven't written a thing? We'd better uh, pull it together. He was writing to the Christian church, which looked nothing like the Christian church that we think of today. I wonder if they walked into a church, if they would even recognise it, if they knew what was going on there. The Christian church was a small community, followers of Jesus, who were scattered through the huge, powerful Roman Empire. By this stage, I don't know if they had any, I don't think they would have had any public buildings of their own. They met in homes. Uh, Sometimes they met in public buildings, you know, like we know of Paul lecturing in the, the Hall of Tyrannus and that sort of stuff. But uh, they were a very small, insignificant minority. We know that that minority grew and grew and eventually became a sizable sort of group and that the Emperor Constantine in 313 or whatever it was, uh, the Edict of Milan and those sort of things, declared Christianity to be the official religion of the Roman Empire and that sort of Rome became Christian and uh, that... Soon after, the Roman Empire collapsed and the church was left standing. And so now the Roman Empire is a memory in the past and the Christian church is still here. 
We know all that, but they didn't know that. They were stuck in this huge empire that ruled the world and that the empire believed and those first followers of Jesus believed would go on forever. Maybe the first followers of Jesus came to not believe that, but before they were followers of Jesus, that's what they believed. The story of their reality was the story of Rome. And uh, their world was dominated by the symbols, the rituals, the practice, the sort of life of Rome itself. It was the story of Rome, the eternal city, Rome that had been established forever. Rome who had conquered the whole sort of known world, the known human world. And uh, in your day-to-day life, sitting there in Ephesus or wherever you happen to be before hearing this letter from John, uh, there would have been the ever-present reminder of the military might of Rome. There would have been the movement of troops sort of through major towns and along major routes and that sort of thing. There would have been a garrison in every town. There would have been, uh, you know... The story of Rome, where there were building projects going on in all sorts of, in sort of every major centre. There were uh, building projects that spanned the empire. You know, the road network that uh, linked every corner of the Roman Empire, mainly so that they could move troops quickly from one side to the other, but also allowing trade and commerce to go on, the sort of things that made Rome rich and prosperous. And, uh, But there would have been administrative buildings, temples, gymnasiums, theatres, arenas, aqueducts, all these sort of things that were part of the glory of Rome and uh, that would have stamped on your the whole way of seeing the world that you were a citizen of the greatest empire the world had ever seen. You enjoyed the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. And, uh, you know, that meant a hard but sort of stable life for all the people who'd been subjugated by this great empire. It was a peace which dealt very harshly with anyone who stepped out of line. You know, the Romans had had, uh, sort of made an art form of crucifixion, of torture, of uh, imprisonment, of exile, feeding to the lions, all those sorts of things. And... uh, These were constant reminders of what it meant to keep the peace, the peace of Rome, and to enjoy the rule of Rome. And uh, in the story of Rome, it was Rome's gods that had blessed them with this position, had blessed them with victory over their enemies, had blessed them with, uh, you know, prosperity, who had blessed them with peace. And so... In the daily life of the Emperor of Rome, there was acknowledgement to those gods. There was thanksgiving to them. Uh, At almost every occasion, from family meals through to business transactions and, you know, the theatre and gladiator events and all that sort of thing, there was a dedication to the gods of Rome and thanksgiving to the gods of Rome for for Rome and what it meant to be a Roman citizen. And... uh, That included sacrifices and uh, gifts to the gods. And at the centre of all this focus and all this was the emperor himself. And he was like the personification of Rome. And more than that, he was something of the incarnation of the gods of Rome. 
His image was everywhere. Every public building, every public project, on the footpath, you know, on the walls, uh, the emperor's image, statues, busts and that sort of thing around the town. And uh, every coin in which trade was carried out and every coin which sort of symbolised the wealth and prosperity of Rome had his image on it. And uh, the regular pattern of feasts and festivals that all celebrated Rome's victories over the barbarians, celebrated the emperor's birthday and uh, thanksgiving and sacrifices for Rome and its ruler and its power sort of reinforced that story for the average person. And, uh, you know, if you happen to live in Rome itself, then it was strongly reinforced now and then. You know, they, they couldn't go to the cinema and watch Lord of the Rings and get these larger-than-life events in their face or Transformers or whatever it happens to be. They, they didn't have that sort of thing. But their, the, the biggest event, if you're lucky enough to experience, would have been a, a Roman triumph, you know, when the... The armies returned from conquering some other barbarian state and extending the borders of Rome and uh, extending the prosperity and the rule of Rome. And they'd drag them all back into Rome and there'd be, you know, music, loud music, you know, like uh, you can't do with, unless you have a thousand watt sound system or something like that, but they're just music because they had mass music and then. You know, the armies coming in, there was noise, there was colour, there was, it would get you in your heart, you know, and uh, it would have been just, yes, for Rome, better than when New South Wales win the state of origin, you know, it's just like, how good is it to be Roman? And uh, <coughs> the, um, the sort of prosperity of Rome was paraded there, and then the prisoners came through, there would have been like exotic animals that you'd never seen before coming from these faraway places. Maybe things you'd heard of in sort of stories, but you wondered if they were very real. And then there would have been exotic people, people that looked so different to you and dressed in things who were, who were led in chains and all that by the might of Rome. And then there would have been kings and queens and princesses brought along in this procession. And uh, then... You know, and they were you know, maybe led to the arena and put to death or you know, whatever. You knew their fate was, their, their lives were now in the hands of Rome. They'd fallen under the power of the gods of Rome. And uh, then there would have been the, the images of the gods of these vanquished people. And uh, all reinforcing to you, the spectator, whether you were there and saw it or whether you heard about it, you know, far away from people who'd seen it. But uh, the, uh, the message was you could hear the gospel, the good news that the, the reign of peace had been extended, that the saviour had come and uh, that his reign of peace was going to endure forever. That's what those listeners to this letter that John wrote felt inside. And uh, we can miss all of this because we don't appreciate their context. But uh, having a listen to this, this is a, a declaration that was made. Some of the wording is a bit hard to follow. I hope you can follow it. But uh, it's, it's declaring that all of Rome should have its year begin and end on the birthday of Emperor Augustus, the 23rd of September. Anyone else got a 23rd of September birthday? 
No? Anyway. Since the providence that has divinely ordered our existence has applied her energy and zeal and has brought life to the most perfect good in Augustus, whom providence has filled with virtues for the benefit of mankind, bestowing him upon us and our descendants as a saviour, he who put an end to war and will order peace, Caesar, who by his epiphany exceeded the hopes of those who prophesize good tidings, that is good news, gospel, euangelion, not only outdoing benefactors of the far past, but also allowing no greater, no hope of greater benefactors in the future. And since the birthday of the God, this is Augustus, first brought to the world the good news, the gospel residing in him. For that reason, with good fortune and safety, the Greeks of Asia have decided that the new year in all cities should begin on 23rd of September, the birthday of Augustus. You know, that's, the, that's how they saw the world. That was the myth that kept them going. And uh, Horace, who was the great poet, the leading poet during the reign of Augustus, a couple of quotes from him. Thine age, O Caesar, has brought back fertile crops to the fields. The emperor has wiped away our sins and revive the ancient values. These were all written before Jesus' time. And uh, those sorts of terms used of Caesar in this era, saviour, rule of peace, good news, wiped away our sins. After death, the emperor was worshipped as a god, and so the new emperor was a son of God. And uh, <clears throat> the people of Rome expected that story to go on forever. I mentioned Jerome in his cave in Bethlehem talking about the Apostle John. He also, it's recorded, when he heard about the fall of Rome in 406 AD, over 300 years after this letter was written, Jerome said, if Rome can perish, what can be safe? As the world crumbled with these barbarian hordes closing in on Rome. He also said the city which had taken the world, the entire world is itself taken. Jerome was a believer, a follower of Jesus, and yet he knew the power of the... He, like, he felt the story of Rome. And uh, so uh, in 80 or 90 AD, when this letter is written, Rome is sort of at its height. It's rumbling on, uh, unstoppable, going from strength to strength. And it was so daring for those early Christians to proclaim a new reality, a new emperor, a new order. Is it just coincidence that they use terms like saviour, good news, prince of peace, wipe away our sins? Or were they sort of a bit dull and unable to create their own? It wasn't that. It was very clear to them that Rome was no longer the story. And so they were using the symbols of Rome, the story of Rome, but reinterpreting it. And the emperor was Jesus himself. As unlikely as it all seemed, Israel's story and the promised Messiah was in fact the good news. Not Augustus's birth or his reign that would go on forever. Uh, the great event for all the world was Jesus himself. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. So for the first Christians, can you feel it? The true light shining in the darkness. Wasn't this yawn moment when they looked at his, oh yeah, well the church has kept going and isn't this good and all that. 
It was a gutsy, risky, out-on-a-limb statement to make. And they were staking their futures on the truth of that claim. And uh, this was not a nice optional extra to make them feel good about themselves. Hope they get together, get to heaven when they die. This was a new social order, a new definition of prosperity, a whole new set of values, a whole new set of ambitions and hopes. The Pax Romana was okay if you worship Caesar as the one who forgave sins and whose reign brought peace. But it was a dangerous threat to someone who stepped out of that story and gave their allegiance to Jesus as the Prince of Peace, the true Son of God, and the one whose rule was destined to prevail. For them, it was very real that, and, you know, that the darkness better be disappearing and the true light already shining, or I'm sunk, or I've been a fool, or I've been, you know, I've, I've had it. That's what it felt like for them. You get it? We're going to try and bring to life what the sort of context that we live in. So I'll hand you over to Lucas. Well, the Roman Empire doesn't dominate our world <clears throat> today, but there are some other major influences that shape our thinking in our lives. And I was trying to think how was I, how can I compare you know, that Roman Empire to the way we think today. And I'm a simple man, so I just came back to chocolate. And I thought the Roman Empire is a bit like this block of chocolate. It's sort of, it's just chocolate. And there's a few cracks in it. And some of the parts of it, probably not that good or whatever, but it's just chocolate. But our world today is full of so many different ideas and voices that are shouting out to us for their attention. Uh, We live in a pluralistic society with different religions, um, different philosophies, different isms like consumerism, secularism, materialism, um, religious extremism. We have diverse cultures, relativism, all those kinds of things. So it's a bit more like this Rockley Road thing here, which has got kind of bits of chocolate and nuts and marshmallow and stuff like that. Who really likes this kind of stuff? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Who likes just the normal kind of chocolate? Oh, so I saw that um, I saw that hand there go straight up. The walkers. You better take some and pass it around. So we live in a world that's full of these voices that are crying out for our attention. And we need to be people who are good at understanding what those voices are calling us to. In the message, Eugene Peterson says, well, translates Romans 12 like this. He says, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. So with Rome, there were symbols, there were stories, there was sort of a flavour of life that shaped those people and that the Christian community had to stand up against and sort of reframe and develop their own 
um, culture. For us, what are the symbols, the stories, and the flavour of life in our modern world? And I was thinking, a, th- a thing that's kind of shaped my thinking about this recently is um, just looking at Facebook. And on Facebook, you get this targeted advertising. So I'm not sure what is on the right-hand side of your Facebook page, but on the right-hand side of my Facebook page, when I remember looking at last, there was advertising for solar panels and also advertising for Russian women. And that's targeted at me because they know that I'm a 40-year-old male living in Bendigo in Australia and that I probably am a certain type of person. So all of their advertising and the messages they're putting forward are tailored to who I am. So the question to think of now, well, what, what are the messages, what are the stories that are being put towards you? And there's a whole lot of symbols coming up behind me now. And these symbols are kind of the sorts of things that they tell a little story about um, our culture. They're messages that are coming towards us that have a whole... Each of these symbols have a whole lot of story in the background to what they're calling us to. And the sorts of things that I feel to pull to in my world as a 40-year-old male living in Bendigo, um, the sorts of stories that I hear are things like, well, you need to get a job and you need to get a house. That, that house, owning a house, is kind of a symbol of your security and tells a story that you can um, have a security for your family and create this environment. That's what I've really got to have. Um, then it's having a stable and good job, a job that fulfills you as a person, um, and that I'm working my way up in that job, that my income's increasing over time and that I'm getting more influence and power and things like that. Um, so there's climbing the ladder, there's having a house, having a good car, making sure you've got the latest technology. You know, you need the, you need the right stuff to be a successful person today, the right kind of phone and computer and all those kinds of, or tablet, all those kind of things, have a great boat. Um, financial freedom... Okay, I want to be able to retire at a certain age and just um, step back from life and have really great holidays. I kind of touched on this at the start, but in the Roman Empire, there was a whole lot of cracks that, there, that appeared. Um, and obviously the Roman Empire failed, but it was an empire that, was kind of, that sat on the shoulders of a bunch of slaves. There was a lot of injustice in the Roman Empire. And just like that empire, the, the world that's presented to us the picture that the world presents to us, there's cracks in that as well. There's things that we can see right through our society, things that, that don't quite work and don't fit. And I was thinking, well, what, what are a few of those kind of cracks? Let's have a look at them now. In a world that's so connected through things like social media and things like that, we hear more and more about a sense of isolation, people who aren't really, who are lonely and separated from one another. Um, we live in a. We have all that we need in this prosperous kind of land that we live in, but there's people who are dying of obesity and preventable diseases and substance abuse. Lots of different issues like that. There's suicide amongst all sorts of different people. There's an emptiness that's often expressed, and just a, sh- a search for meaning that's not really being fulfilled by anything that people are finding. Then there's a the shape of our world as a whole. Um, in 2014 report from Oxfam, they reckon that 85 richest people in the world, 
So richest individuals have a combined wealth which is the same as the bottom half of the world's population. So there's 85 people in our world that have the same wealth as, what's the population up to? About 7 billion? So 3.5 billion or 3 billion people have the same wealth as 85 individuals. So that, that's a picture of a world that's kind of out of whack, that doesn't necessarily work. A huge inequality. How much does our access in our Western world to cheap goods rely on exploita- exploitation of the environment or of people who live and work in the developing world? I was reading a bit of um, Australian Christian sociologist Mark Sayers who making some observations about our society and he's got some really interesting things that he's found out about Japanese culture. He said, amongst young people in Japan, this is um, through an artist named Takashi Murakami, he's describing a society in Japan amongst young people in our day today which is kind of obsessed with cuteness and I don't know, manga cartoons and those little dolls that have the really big eyes and things like that. And he describes their, their way of thinking, these young people, as being super flat. So they have all these endless opportunities and all of this excitement and um, brightness, but no depth at all in the way they approach life. He said that one guy reckons that there's a million Japanese young people who've opted out of society and who will just spend all of their time on the internet living their lives through these kind of manga and cartoon cute worlds. Um, He says that it's a society of young people full of technology, stimulation, entertainment, but totally lacking in depth. He describes the young person in Japan's view of the world as being super flat. He says, like all young people, Japanese young people crave spiritual depth. They want answers to the key questions of life, but instead... When they walk out their door, they are confronted with a super cute, super loud, super stimulating, super bright, but ultimately super flat world. The excitement, cuteness, vitality of life and stimulation fills all of the deep longings that they might have. There's no depth in their relationships. He also presents the idea of empty happiness. He says that society is presenting a thing like this beautiful, this gift that's wrapped up in this amazing trimmings and it looks really incredible but when you unwrap the gift there's actually nothing inside and Mark Sayers goes on to talk about how he sees that kind of issue in our Australian society as well our society offers you everything this amazing gift that looks incredible but when you unwrap it there's nothing inside whereas in the past there would have been a sense of meaning and purpose connected to something beyond who we are, to the supernatural, whereas now that's going to be pushed to the edges, especially, Mark Sayers observes, in Japanese society, which, where they won't talk about deeper issues. And in our society, more and more, notice how um, spirituality and Christian ideas are being pushed more and more to the edges and to the margins. We live in a society with all the trimmings of looks like amazing things. We've got incredible technology, we've got entertainment, we've got plenty of distractions, but when you get down to the the heart of it, there's no meaning or purpose, just an empty box. 
We're going to watch a clip now from, well, I won't tell you where it's from. It's a clip that some of you have probably seen it before, but it sort of captures a bit of the spirit of our age. Um, have a look and think about what's the story that's being presented by this. Your life is your life. Don't let it be clubbed into dank submission. Be on the watch. There are ways out. There is light somewhere. It may not be much light, but it beats the darkness. Be on the watch. The gods will offer you chances. Know them. Take them. You can't beat death, but you can beat death in life sometimes. And the more often you learn to do it, the more light there will be. Your life is your life. Know it while you have it. You are marvelous. The gods wait to delight in you. So what's the image of life presented there? You are gods. They wait for you to go forth, to make life happen, to stand up against the crowd. It's sort of a vision of life full of energy, young people, excitement, uh, vitality, people dancing, all of those kind of things. But if we watch the end of it, of this picture, this is a really creative presentation. What do we see at the end? We're going to show you the second half now. Your life is your life. Know it while you have it. You are marvelous. The gods wait to delight in you. Okay, so how do you feel when the symbol comes up at the end? Levi's. A big what? Big bucks, yeah, you've got to spend a lot of money to buy Levi's jeans. Feel ripped off. Yeah, sort of presented this vision of life, but behind it, all of that creativity and those ideas that people have presented is just to get you to buy stuff, get you to buy a pair of jeans. They've created an image of life and a story and then associated it with their brand so that you, long, you have longings in your life, longings that they are saying can be fulfilled through buying their product, you can become this kind of person. And that's, that's kind of the empty gift that our society is presenting, how much of what the stories that we're being given are shaped by advertising and trying to get us to buy more stuff. Martin? The boy across the road from us, this is a few years ago, shot himself in the head. And I went to his house. We had our dead clothes from Berkshire, Sydney. In a plane, so suddenly from this outback town, in the middle of Sydney, in an ambulance, and there are all these billboards, just like that kind of thing. And I remember thinking, all of the glamour, all of the colour, just washed out of it. They're just trying to sell something. Totally meaningless. And it's not a big enough vision for life, for any of us, to buy, to have more stuff, to have better clothes, to look better to be that kind of person. There needs to be a bigger vision for life. Um, In his book, Rumours of Another World, Philip Yancey, American author, describes what happens in a society that's lost a sense of meaning and connection with the supernatural. Um, 
He describes in one part how entomologists have done this test with butterflies to entice male butterflies. They'll paint a larger, more enticing replica of the females of the species. So they'll, get this, they'll paint a big female butterfly. Now the male butterfly gets really excited by this and the male butterfly will jump on top of the cardboard rec- replica over and over and over again whilst nearby the real living female butterfly opens and closes her wings in vain. And Yancey goes on to talk about C.S. Lewis. He says C.S. Lewis uses a phrase in one of his books, the sweet poison of the false infinite, to describe the same tendency in human beings as the male butterflies. We've allowed the substitute sacreds or the false infinites to take the place that can only be filled by the real article. So sweet poison, it's a poison that tastes good, but ultimately, if we fulfil fill those longings with things other than the supernatural God who made us for a purpose and made us to be connected with him, if we fill that with anything else, which is what we'll do, if we fill it with anything else, it will poison us, even though it tastes sweet initially and it will leave us bitterly dis- disappointed and can't satisfy us. And that's a really powerful kind of picture picture there of the butterfly. Now back, Yancey goes on and he talks a bit about how in last century, in the great sort of Russian communist experiment, they deliberately um, put God out of the picture, said the supernatural didn't exist, God didn't exist, and ran their society based on that. And he points out a really interesting phenomenon that happened. This is what he says. This is a quote from Nikita Khrushchev, who was the president of Russia, he says, I'm warning you in all seriousness, I tell you that communism is sacred, said Nikita Khrushchev in 1961, hailing a massive political experiment. Ten years later, his successor, Lenin Brezhnev, reiterated, everything which bears on the life, activities and name of Lenin is sacred. The idolatry found its expression in thousands of statues and in Lenin's corp, corpse, sorry, macabrely displayed in Red Square. For all but a few diehards, however... The promise of communism vaporised as it joined the fate of other substitute sacreds. In the words of A.N. Wilson, dethroning God, that generation found it impossible to leave the sanctuary empty. They put God out of the picture, but it was impossible for them to leave that sacred space of their lives and their society empty, and they filled it with false sacreds. And he goes on and says, they put man in his place, man in the place of God, which had the paradoxical effect not of elevating human nature, but of demeaning human nature to depths of of cruelty, depravity and stupidity unparalleled in human history. So, how much of what we chase after or what our society presents is just fluff or fairy floss to dull our longings? How much of it is just kind of there around the edges, sucking us in, but not really connecting us with the true meaning and purpose that's possible in a connection with a living God. And that void can only really be filled with a goodness and love that comes from the source of life itself. Over to Andy. Some mornings, this time of year especially, it happens too early in the summer for me to do it. I can stand on the back veranda of our place 
looking east in the like when it's dawn, when it's dark, the sky's grey, and I can see the outlines of trees, and I sort of know the shape of the yard, know when th- where things are and all that, but you can't see, you can't see any detail, can't see any colour, can't, you can just see outlines, no three-dimensional shape or anything, just the grey of the sky. <coughs> and, uh, but for standing in the right place, I can see two really bright street lights. They must sort of come through the foliage of the trees or something like that. And if I was looking for comfort and sort of hope and warmth on a cold winter's morning on my back veranda, those street lights look like it's where it's at. The grey sky uh, doesn't look like it offers much hope at all. But if I go and have a shower and then come back and stand there again, maybe 20 minutes later, the, the sun is up, the sky is sort of uh, bright, I can see the colour, I can see the shape, I can make out the yard... And I can, as the sun comes over the, the horizon, I can feel the warmth of its rays. And you go looking for those street lights, and you can't find them in amongst all the other light and colour that's uh, coming through now that the sun is up. And uh, you could, if you wanted to, choose those artificial lights, those artificial lights over the real dawn. What's it mean for us to live in the true light? while the darkness is disappearing? What's it mean for us to be true light in a dark world? There's three main things we want to focus in on. And the first one is, it means risk. Those early Christians understood that the decision to follow Jesus as Lord and Saviour was not a safe one in this world. It put them on the outer of the social, economic and, and political structures of the time. For many years, though, it's been quite a respectable thing in our world to be a Christian. Maybe less so today. It might be a good thing. But, um, you know, there's a, <clears throat> a good citizen is also a churchgoer and uh, you know, following Jesus is part of being a good citizen or is compatible with it. Whereas for those early Christians, following Jesus was treason. It was betraying the state. And... Uh, Our church, the Church of Jesus, is moving forward in parts of the world where life is hard, while for us, with so much in the West, the church is in decline. Uh, Following Jesus is not meant to get in the way of anything important in our lives, in the parts of the world that we live in. Alan Hirsch talks about the Chinese underground church and how it grew tremendously despite persecution and uh, trouble and uh, threats to its future. And he said their, their creed was quite simple. Jesus is Lord and I cling to him. And they, they cling to him because they have nothing else, because there is no other option, and they count upon him. Our culture is passive, you know, we're wired to entertainment, we're wired to comfort and we're wired to stuff. And it flavours what it means for us to follow Jesus as well. We like an adrenaline rush. We crave excitement and risk. We go bungee jumping or it might be bargain hunting or whatever it happens to be. But we've lost the adventure of stepping out on a limb where we must count upon Jesus. Not entirely. I know I'm preaching to the converted here because all of you have taken some risky step in your world, to do what you're doing. Especially those who are crazy enough to come to Cornerstone and 
you know, you've, you've taken a step sideways or a step backwards and uh, a, a risk to, uh, that's crazy if Jesus is not real. Keep on taking risks. Don't, uh, you know, don't, don't stop it. Risk to stand up to, take the risks to stand up to things that are wrong. Take the risks to oppose what should not be. Take the risk to put your time and energy and resources behind what should be. Risk taking Jesus at his word and investing heavily in his reality. Yeah, a little community here in Quarry Hill, it's nothing special. We know we're ordinary, we've got our failings and faults and all that. But uh, there's this sort of very simple risk at the heart of what we do. We work part-time, we pool our money, and we sort of make the priority our mission together. There are great things happening around this old church, this old property, but uh, to make it happen, there's a risk, and sometimes you feel it. Guys at my age and stage, you know, Jono said it, security, family to look after and all that sort of thing. Most of them have their houses paid off or almost paid off. Their superannuation is starting to build up nicely. Their retirement plans are sort of getting secure. They've got security. They're tasting the fruits of success. Gus and Fee aren't here, but I look at Gus. He's an electrician. He's worked hard. He runs his own business. Um, He puts in long hours. And, you know, the what the tradies are like. Guys his age who've been doing that, they've got the big house, the bigger the better. They've got the flash ute, they've got the Malibu boat or whatever it happens to be, you know. They've taken their kids to Disneyland or Las Vegas or whatever it happens to be, whatever your, your taste is. The boys with their toys, you know. And what sort of an idiot is Gus? He's doing all that and... The money's being siphoned off into connecting with people and trying to share the message of this Jesus. If Jesus is not real, then we've been very foolish. We are very foolish. And there's others in this room who have been much more foolish than us. Um, When I was moving to Bendigo, I went and saw a surveyor to ask him about work and I told him my story of doing two degrees in engineering and surveying and then working as sort of a youth worker in a Christian-based you know, training young people and all that sort of thing. And he said, well, that was a bit of a waste of time, wasn't it? <laughs> that, was, that was the end of my interview. Um, but uh, the risk allows the light to shine. There was a young guy who was getting to know us and, you know, you just couldn't believe how... He asked us, how do you do it at your age? How do you keep doing it? I, we're radical, but we're young uni students and all that. There's nothing at stake... But he had lecturers who had been radical when they're young, but now at our age they'd sort of sold out to the, to the bigger dream. How do you keep radical at your old age? And um, <coughs> I remember sitting there in the kitchen listening to this conversation. Rose said, well, there's something magic that happens between us and Jesus when you let him in. Talked about that for a bit, but then... And he was sort of, yeah, yeah, yawning a bit and all that, but then... She also told him that we pool our finances and share a common purse. And he said, F me! (laughs) We didn't say that, but I knew there was something different. And uh, our conversations about Jesus got much deeper from that point onwards. At the end of that passage from 1 John, John says, Do not give your hearts to this world or any of the things it craves. Do not love this world or any of the things it craves because 
when you love this world, you do not have the love of your, the Father in you. This world craves, only offers craving for physical pleasure, craving for everything you see, and pride in our uh, ambitions, no, pride in our achievements and our possessions. But this world and all of its, its cravings will one day disappear. The person who is following God's will is part of the permanent and cannot die. Maybe we are camped under a light post at dawn and we need to start, you know, we need to break camp and head uphill where we can see the sun rise and uh, catch glimpses of the real light. Uh, And remember that it's a risk either way. This world is fading away. It would be terrible to give our hearts to this world and all that it's, it craved and found that it didn't last. Our second bit of advice, we are running out of time, is to be in it for the long haul. Following Jesus is not a sprint, but more of a marathon. Uh, there's sort of a temptation to think, oh, I'll go and do Cornerstone and do a year on first year and then team and then I'll just get back into ordinary life and kind of have your faith just fitting in around the edges and not at the heart of things. The challenge from Jesus always was to seek first his kingdom and then build life around that. He'll provide everything else you need. What we're trying to do is light a bonfire that lasts for a long time, not just one of those little fires where you chuck on lots of leaves and they're gone really quickly. And I think doing something like first year in Cornerstone and then going on a team is a bit like the kindling to get that fire going. You're starting to develop the habits and the attitudes of life that are going to help you to live following Jesus as the king for the long haul in a, in a culture that's becoming more and more hostile. So how do we develop those habits? And what are some of those habits? Well, I was thinking, as a young person, as I was growing up, I loved reading biographies about Christians um, and missionaries and was really inspired by people like Mary Slessor and C.T. Studd and um, a whole bunch of others like that. But I realised I realized now that what I was excited about was the adventure and the heroism. I realised that I loved that idea that they were heroes and people were acknowledging them. them. And that was what was kind of feeding in me. Probably that wasn't something that was really good because I really wanted to be the hero, but when it came down to it, I didn't really want to develop those disciplines of life that could help me to be that hero. And that maybe even being the hero in the first place is not what Jesus is actually calling me to. I was thinking about um, Mother Teresa. Now, Mother Teresa, at the age of 12, decided that she felt the call to become a missionary. Um, Then, at age 18, she went to Ireland and um, joined some nuns there. At the age of 19, she took her vows and moved to India. Um, And then, after India... At the age of 20, oh, when she was in India, sorry, when she started off there, she spent 20 years um, teaching children, often from rich families, in a school, and eventually she became the, the head of that school. There's a lot of challenges she had to face along the way. She had to learn English and she learned to speak um, Hindi, and a lot of 
faithfulness in following Jesus in ordinary life that was built into her character and who she was. It wasn't until she was 38 years old, she was travelling on a train one day and she got the call to become a missionary to dying in the streets of Calcutta. Now during those early times when she stepped out into that mission, um, there were times when she really felt the temptation to go back to the comfortable life that she'd had. She had to beg on the streets for food and for accommodation sometimes and it was pretty tough but what she was doing was something that she was called to and took all of the character and strength and connection, conviction that this is what God wanted her to do and who God wanted her to be to keep going. And she did. She kept going. So that for the next 40 years, she was able to establish the missionaries of charity. And there were missionaries of charities in places all over the world, including Burke, I think. I was interested to note, too, and think about how, uh, for, I think for Laurie, starting Cornerstone, that he was 40 when he started Cornerstone. Is that right, Laurie? 39. Can't remember. Yep. We'll say about 40. And there was a whole lot of adventures that he'd been on for the 13 or 14 years that he'd been a Christian um, and a whole lot of habits that he'd built into his life in connecting with the Father, learning to share his faith over and over again. I think one of the things that sometimes holds us back from that kind of stuff with real prayer and sharing our faith and really understanding the Scriptures is that it's, it's kind of hard and it's not natural. It feels a bit awkward. And we can get a bit stuck by that. But no one who does something for the first time ever feels like that was easy or natural. But once you've done it over and over and over and over again and you've struggled to connect with the Father when the rest of life is difficult, that things really, take, things really start to become natural, a part of who you are. It's not until you go out and share your faith and make a mess of it um, over and over again and start to get it right. And you find that even in making a mess of it, God because you're taking a risk, God will work through you anyway. And that idea I love in Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, do you realise that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it. For an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Think of all those years that athletes in our world spend disciplining their bodies to run a race for 10 seconds and win a gold medal in Olympics. People will spend 15, 20 years following that dream how much more should we discipline ourselves and develop that character that's going to shape us to be vessels, people who know the living God and can pass on that life to others? So what's it mean for us to live in the true light? Risk. It means being in it for the long haul, sticking at it. And lastly, just, I wish I'd left more time, I'll just say very quickly, but love. John is talking about love when he mentions the darkness disappearing, the true light shining. 
If we say we are living in the light but hate a Christian brother or sister, we are still living in the darkness. But anyone who loves another brother or sister is living and walking in the light and doesn't cause others to stumble. In our world of disconnection and relationship breakdown, we need to hear Jesus' words more than ever, that the world will know that you are my disciples by your love. He prays in John 17 that we will experience such perfect unity together that the world will know that God sent Jesus and that the Father loves us as much as the Father loves Jesus, that it's our relationships that will prove that to people. In our consumer society, more than ever, where our treasure is, our hearts are too. And generosity breaks the covetous spirit of the age that we live in, that sort of the craving for everything we can see, wanting what others have. I'm not talking about giving away what we no longer want. That's sort of uh, just convenient. But putting aside what we do want in order to be a blessing to others instead. And not making a show of it. Jesus talked about doing that sort of thing in secret, doing it hidden. Um, Spending money on things we want is a huge but modern phenomenon. For most of history, people have been concerned to meet their needs and that's what life's been about. Part of what Lucas was talking about before, the vision that we're sold is just someone's dream filtering down. It's just all these layers of different dreams all trying to make the money to get from people underneath in this huge pyramid system almost. And uh, we're at the bottom of it. We need to cut through all that. And the way you cut through it is through generosity. It's through giving Contentment and generosity are like poison in this world that says, get what you can, get what you want. That's what you need. And uh, there's a whole story there that I won't come into, the story of how we became changed from being citizens to consumers. But uh, life is about indulging. It's about what I can get. We think it's because we're really free, because we're individuals, because we're discerning, because we have taste but it's a multi-billion dollar industry that's aimed to get to inflame longings and needs in me so that someone can get the dollar out of my pocket into theirs. And uh, we're all running through this maze, we're on this treadmill, we're working our butts off to buy things that cannot and will not make us deeply satisfied or contented. And we keep buying into that story. We keep buying into it over and over again. It's become the empire that we live in. It's our Rome. It's part of the shades of the darkness of our world. It's part of the lack of light. But generosity cuts right across it. Give away your money. Give away your time. In a time-starved world where nobody has any time for anything, we're all just uh, growing from one thing to the next. Create space in your life for others. Not space in your life just for your own leisure so that you feel better about things. We're going one step further. Create space in your space. Invite people into your world. Create space in your attention. You know, we spend so much time staring at the computers, the tablets, the phones that are grabbing our attention and we need to create space and uh, look up from this this thing in our hand and look around and... uh, make time and space in our lives to connect with others and to bless them. Gil Can, who's our advocate, 
a great blessing to Cornerstone. He's been a great, uh, had a great ministry here in Victoria for, for many years, you know, a leader in the church in these parts. He says this to finish up on. In the past, it's been common for unchurched people who became Christians to believe before they belonged, i.e. belonged to a church. That's now changing. Recent research in the UK shows that more and more such people belong before they believe. In fact, for many, it's become crucial that they belong in order to believe. For them, if there's no belonging, they will not, there will be no believing. This presents a huge challenge to we Christians in our churches. Uh, most disturbingly, these people are looking for real relationships, genuine friendships. We want them to come into our churches to hear the gospel. They want to come into our homes to see and feel the gospel. Are we ready for this? Put another way, we want people to join our churches, but in this world of broken families and shattered relationships, many such people want to join our families, i.e. to be as welcome and at home in our homes as are the members of our own families. This will be increasingly the way into God's kingdom for many people. First, belonging in our homes. Second, believing in Jesus as Saviour and Lord themselves. And third, belonging to a a local branch of God's worldwide family. That is a healthy church. Their believing in him begins with their belonging amongst us. Are we willing for this? So in conclusion, what have we covered? The early Christians had to struggle to live in the light of the context of the might of Rome. And thank God they did it so well. In our society, it's easier in some ways to live as a believer, but in other ways it's harder to believe. All the different messages being thrown at us all the time. How do we stay true to that and not get comfortable? Well, one of the ways is learning to take risks to make Jesus' kingdom the priority, despite the costs or the risks to our security or our entertainment or our comfort. And then to be in it for the long haul, to develop those kinds of disciplines, it's going to bring long-term fruit those habits of life that will connect us deeply with the Father and it will teach us to connect deeply with those around us in our communities and to express love. I think there's no greater privilege as a follower of Jesus than to love one another, to love others as Christ loves us. Take a few moments now with some people around you. Just talk about one thing that you want to do in response to all of this and then pray for each other.